Lord, we ask that you will help us to hear your word clearly, to understand it, to know how to interpret it in our lives, to remember it, to be changed by it, and to do it. Amen. Well, back overhearing, if you like, eavesdropping on Paul's letter to the Christians who lived in that little town of Colossae. We called them the Colossians, and they were newish Christians. Their church was only about five years old. So Paul has been busy uh, telling them how Christ is all in all and how much Christ has done for them. And he goes on to say this, Just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live your lives in him, rooted and built up in him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught and overflowing with thankfulness. Well, that's a profound thing to say. Continue. Grow. But we might ask ourselves, how do we do that? And Paul doesn't write in this spot, answer that question. But everywhere else in his teaching and in the teaching of the Old and New Testament, we get the very clear idea that that uh, is a life leading to fruitfulness. So here's the picture. Imagine a Norfolk Island pine, one of the world's great trees. They're huge. They grow up to 100 metres tall and they are long-lived. And in fact, there are many of them uh, transplanted from Norfolk Island along our coastline. You've probably seen them in Fremantle and Rockingham and Mandurah and uh, places like that. And they were planted there well over 100 years ago to provide replacement masts for for sailing ships. I know if you've ever wondered why they're all there, but that was the reason. And then, of course, when steamships came in, uh, they didn't need them, so they are still growing. And a couple of years ago, in my backyard, was another Norfolk Island pine. It was small, and it was a bit scrawny, not as green and healthy as it could be. In a word, it was stunted. And why? Because I'd put it in a pot. And I wanted to keep it that way. It was my Christmas tree. I didn't want it to grow 100 metres high. And it was stunted because it was not rooted and grounded. It was not established. It was just in a pot. 
So I guess we could be two kinds of Christians. We could be stunted because we're not growing. We might be living still on what we learned in Sunday school if we went to Sunday school. Or we can be, as Paul says, um, be rooted and built up in Christ. We can be flourishing, an asset to God's kingdom, beautiful and fruitful. Well, how do we do that? How do we come to be uh, rooted and grounded and established in Christ? How do we flourish? Well, I think the answer is the same five things as are the answer to almost anything in the Christian life. The first is prayer. And if you like, continuing with that image of the tree, uh, prayer is the tree's oxygen or our oxygen, our life-giving link to God. Talking to God, praising God, confessing our sins and weaknesses, asking for help, asking for all God's gifts and blessings asking for peace and justice in God's world and praying for the work of God's church, praying for the needy, praying not just as individuals but as part of the Christian community. Prayer is our oxygen, our life-giving, breathing conversation that builds relationship, continuing relationship between us and God. The second, you won't be surprised to know, is reading the Bible. That's our food, our nourishment. And if we visualise ourselves as that tree, it is the fertiliser, it is the goodness in the soil. And it is a challenge to read the scriptures and take them in. It's a challenge to find time to do that. How do we? Well, the same as we find time to eat because we can't do without it. The temptation is to let ourselves starve spiritually while our Bible sits on a shelf. The third thing that helps us to be rooted and grounded and being built up in the faith is being in fellowship with one another the way we are this morning. Most trees grow best in a wood, in the bush or in a forest. They give each other shade and shelter. They make a microclimate, uh, keeping moisture in, protecting from uh, the wind and the sun, and they often actually fertilise each other. If you plant an avocado tree in your garden, you will get no avocados unless you plant a second one. Only two of them together will be fruitful. We need each other. Jesus called us to be a community, not just a scattering of hermits. And then 
God provides for us, God promises us God's strength and presence through the sacraments. Christ calls us to be baptised, to declare our part in the body of Christ. And in the Christian community, we're called to share together in the thanksgiving, Holy Communion, as we did last week. There's where we share the family meal. I guess sticking with our tree imagery, uh, baptism and Holy Communion might be considered to be the water to make the tree grow. And then doing all those four things in loving response to the God who first loved us, we ask for the Holy Spirit's help to live it all out in practice, to obey, to walk God's way, to be God's people, to be busy bringing in God's kingdom by loving service, acting in justice and compassion and goodness and advocating for those things in our community. Justice, compassion, goodness, peace and sharing the good news of what God has done for us in Christ. So let's not be cramped and stunted in a pot like the pine in my garden but let's flourish and grow like the Norfolk Island pines on our beaches. Well, having told the Colossians in the light of everything that Jesus has done from them to continue to be uh, rooted and grounded and built up and strengthened, he goes on again, to deal with the problems that have affected that church in Colossae because of one or perhaps more people who have been unsettling them. And we really have to guess a bit because we only get one side of the correspondence. We only know the reply. We don't know what Epaphras or someone uh, told Paul about what was happening in Colossae. And there seem to be two streams of things. So perhaps there's more than one person unsettling them. Two streams of things, uh, as far as we can tell from what Paul's reply is. One is they seem to be a first century equivalent of what we'd now call New Age, which only goes to show that there are no new heresies there are only the old heresies recycled and brought in again. They seem to be adding in, adding to Christ as if that were possible. Uh, thrones, powers, principalities, spirits of the universe. And they seem to be telling the Colossians that, okay, they've got Jesus and that's pretty good, but... There's more. There's secret, mysterious wisdom that's only for the chosen few, 
Christ is for everybody, but here's something special for the super spiritual people. And these people seem to be obsessed with things like visions, angels, and weird powers. Perhaps it's like some of the strange extremes of the Pentecostal movement. Now, hear me carefully. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with being Pentecostal, but there do seem to be at the fringes of that movement some very strange things. I met uh, one who uh, he and his wife said that because God had given humanity a dominion over the animals and the creation, that if we only had enough faith to exercise it, we would be able to tell the animals, even the wild animals, what to do, that they should be obeying Christians. Well, when I had a dog and a cat, I had enough trouble getting them to obey, letting, let alone wild animals. And Paul says to them, uh, Paul says about them that these people are puffed up they're full of pride and hot air. And he says to the Colossians, don't let yourselves be captured by this stuff. In Christ, you are free. In Jesus are all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. We sang that in uh, one of the hymns earlier. Uh, in Christ's name alone. And that's a, that's a hymn I think that Paul uh, would have been very happy to sing along with us. The other possibility, or perhaps even both these things are happening at the same time, someone is telling the, um, the Christians who lived at Colossae that it's okay to be kind of run-of-the-mill Christians, but you could be a super-Christian, a super-Christian who perhaps never sinned. When I was a teenager, there were groups of people like that uh, in Australia and in the UK, sinless perfectionists, they were called, and they believed that by disciplining themselves and by struggling and by working really hard, they would never sin. There is a lovely story about a conference at which one of them, these people, had been speaking. He stood up to tell them how he had struggled and worked really hard um, and now he didn't sin anymore. The person sitting next to him who didn't believe that for a minute, uh, when the speaker had sat down, picked up the speaker's jug of water and poured it all over him. And what he said and did next showed that he wasn't sinless or perfect at all. Paul is saying, don't let these people tell you that if they do all this hard work 
if they do extra ceremonies, extra rules, many days of long fasting, praying all night, this will prove that they are really Christians and really become perfect, super Christians. Don't let yourselves be condemned by anybody saying that stuff, Paul says. Don't let anybody condemn you about what you eat and what you drink. Or heaven help us by getting yourself circumcised. This is not in Colossae uh, a problem of Jewish believers pressing circumcision on Christian believers so that they can become properly uh, Christian. This is circumcision as um, and without anaesthetic and without antibiotics either. So if you go, uh, you're right. This is circumcision done to batter down the body to make yourself more perfect. Don't do that, Paul says to them. Remember that you've been baptised. That was a spiritual circumcision. When you were baptised, you were buried and raised to life again as you went into the water and came out of it with Christ. You don't need all this extra stuff. It's foolish and redundant because Christ is everything. And to really reinforce that, Paul gives them and us two pictures of what Jesus has already done for them on the cross. The most common picture in the New Testament, the most common metaphor, is of Christ suffering for our sins, bearing the punishment for them in his own self. But there are other metaphors, other pictures, and it seems to me that no matter how many there are, we will never be able to sound the depths of that awesome mystery of how Christ was dealing with sin and death and evil and pain on the cross. But here's the picture that Paul gives them. Imagine a big piece of paper, and in my case it would have to be a very big piece of paper indeed. It's like a legal IOU, what used to be called a promissory note, that records everything we owe to God. Every commandment that we should have kept, every good thing that we should have done but didn't get around to do. I don't know how big your piece of paper would be, but mine would have to be fairly sizable. And Paul tells, them, tells us that Jesus, through his death and resurrection, has rubbed it all out, has wiped it clean. No more is owed. In fact, Paul says, carrying that picture along a bit, what's more, 
Jesus has not only rubbed it clean, but he has nailed it to the cross and he has displayed it there, cancelled. Two very powerful pictures of what Jesus has done for those Colossians and for us. And those rulers and authorities that you've got hung off hung up on you, Colossians, Jesus has disarmed them. He has taken away their power. And to really understand that last image, we need a bit of a background. The Roman Empire was always fighting wars and skirmishes. And up until about the year 500, they won them all. When a Roman general was victorious in a great and significant battle, not just a little border skirmish somewhere, but a battle that really counted, he was granted a triumph. They didn't give him a sports car. They gave him a procession through the streets of Rome. He would ride first, this victorious general, on his war horse, all arrayed in purple cloth and with silver on the reins and the harness. And he would ride through the streets of Rome. And everybody would know that this triumph was coming, so they would be out in the streets. There might even be a holiday for it. So there would be cheering crowds on every side. And the general would be followed by his officers, all of them in uniform, with their helmets and their shields and their swords and their spears, all shining. There would be singers and there would be musicians. And following them, on foot, barefoot, in rags and chains, would come the king or the queen and the generals of that defeated enemy, of the army that lost. So here's the picture that Paul is painting for those Colossians. All these rulers and authorities and powers that you've let yourself get so fascinated with, or that you are even circumcising yourself to uh, put down in your body. Jesus has already overcome them. Jesus has beaten them. Jesus has triumphed over them. They have been publicly shamed, just like the defeated king or queen or general in a Roman victory parade, a triumph. Christ is the real thing. Christ is the head. In him, Paul says, the whole fullness of deity, of godness, if you like, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. Don't let anyone capture you. 
Don't let anyone condemn you. Now, we are not the Colossians, but we are people a lot like them. And it may be that we have a temptation to add something to what Christ has already done for us. There is no Jesus plus. There is just Jesus. Or maybe we are letting people critique what we eat or drink or how many um, festivals we go to or whatever, Christian festivals um, Paul would be talking about. Or maybe it's something else entirely. You know yourself and I know myself. Are we adding anything, trying to add anything even to God's grace? Don't forget who you are, he tells them. Your people who've been baptised, your people who have died with Christ and you have risen with him into forgiveness and new life and fullness and grace. You don't need anything more. Amen.